You're listening to The Lid Is On with me, Connor Lennon, and this week we're continuing our efforts to bring a ray of light into the month of January, which for many people can be quite gloomy and grey. On the last couple of shows, we introduced you to some colleagues we don't often get to chat with, but this time we're going to hear from someone whose voice you are likely to have heard before. It's the host of the UN Awake at Night podcast, who also has a little side hustle as the UN Head of Global Communications, Melissa Fleming. Hi, Melissa. (laughs) Hi, Connor. Nice to be here. Well, it's still Happy New Year, I guess. Do you do resolutions? Is that your thing? Uh, I've given up because every time... I mean, there's certainly personal resolutions that are, it's nice to aspire to. But I understand therapists say that they're a bad thing because you just end up feeling guilty when you should be turning over a new leaf every day. Exactly. But I'm not a therapist. Small, I couldn't say. Small <laughs> bite-sized little steps of improvement are, are the best way, I think. Absolutely. Well, taking a quick look back at 2022, first of all, on a personal level, how was it for you? You know, on a personal level, it, I have a hard time separating completely my my personal life from what's happening in the world because it's so linked to our my work life and my work life is pretty much dominant um in in my you know every waking moment of the day so it was good from the perspective of health. Um, I did get COVID, but it wasn't that bad. My, some of my family members got it. Everyone is okay. In the end, you know, isn't that the most important thing? Um, the people you love are safe. At the same time, um, the, what, what, the, the unspeakable, unthinkable, unimaginable happened, and that is that we have a horrific war in the center of Europe. And... Um, it, it, for me, it's I've just I've worked on humanitarian issues for for so much of my life that it was really hard to to enjoy doing well, emerging from COVID nineteen, um, being able to go to restaurants when I knew there was so much suffering in Ukraine and so many towns and cities. And it wasn't that long after you you came here from the UN Refugee Agency that that we were suddenly in the middle of a pandemic, which must have thrown all of your plans up in the air. In a way, yes, because when I came, I was kind of tasked by the Secretary General to look at the Department of Global Communications and to develop a global communication strategy, which I did with the help of all my colleagues. And, you know, we developed this strategy to, to have an approach to communications that would be not just delivering the facts, delivering the data, delivering the statistics, which are important because the UN um, is in places and is collecting uh, the data of human suffering, um, the um, statistics of of poverty and development and all of these, uh, what's happening in the science around climate change, this needs to get out to the world. But people are so overwhelmed with the gloom and doom of the news that they're getting and they're facing, especially with their social media feeds, um, you know, blasting them every second with something new and one-upping the awfulness. So what was clear is that we needed to address uh, communications in, in, a, um, in a way that I called the three W's of cause communications, what, why, care, and what now. So the what is delivering all those facts and, and statistics and data and information um, and science. But then the second W is why care, really. Why should the world care? We, ha- we need the world to care because if we're going to achieve climate action, 
if we're going to overcome human suffering and stop wars, we need the key players of the world to care about what we're going to do. And then once we get them to care, comes that, then comes this third W, what now? What are we asking them to do? What is the UN call to action? And what is the UN doing? And this is how we designed our, our communications, and it actually fit quite well around uh, the global crisis that we were you know, all surprised with, but forced into facing, and that was a global pandemic of COVID-19. Well, I'll come in a moment to how the UN does and can shift the needle on so many of these, of these big important issues, climate, the climate crisis being just one of them, of course. But I don't want to date us, but let's face it, both of us can remember the time before social media platforms, before the internet, when it was TV, when it was radio. And that, of course, had its own problems. It wasn't perfect back then. But uh, do you find it's more complicated now when we are increasingly reliant on private channels run by private companies, individuals, which, in which the oversight, the legislation is in really still such a nascent state Oh, absolutely. I mean, I I can remember the days, and I've been in this profession for a long time, of communicating on behalf of UN and international organizations. And our main method was to reach out to journalists. And journalists would then, uh, hopefully, uh, write a story or, or develop a broadcast that would convey the messages and the information that we thought the public should hear. When social media came on to the onto the you know realm of uh, of communication possibilities we were all very excited about it those of us in this profession because we could actually reach people directly um, and engage with them and so and so we did and we have grown at you know our UN channels reach millions and millions of people and we communicate them direct with them directly but what has happened is that that kind of renaissance of social media as the global public square and and the age of possibility and delivering messages for good and where we would unite people um, around the values of the UN, it has been poisoned with um, bad actors who have mastered the algorithms and the design of the social media platforms themselves that were not um, intended to deliver a service to you know, public information, but rather they were designed to make as much profit for the owners of the platforms themselves and by collecting like data and, uh, and exploiting um, our, uh, our propensity to uh, you know, react to outrage. It feels like we're all feeling our way, us at the UN, other people who want to get their message out, and the companies themselves. The companies themselves, and I know the companies have made, and we're seeing this actually in real time with Twitter. I mean, we already had problems with Twitter prior to Elon Musk taking it over. There was still, there was misinformation, there was misogyny, there was hate. But there were huge efforts by content moderators, trust and safety teams, to you know, tone it down, to flag, to take down accounts that were crossing you know horrific red lines, and now all that is gone. So actually, we are seeing um, how much was being done before, and we are seeing efforts by the other platforms. But frankly, with the business model that they have, uh, 
which um, really favors uh, voices that uh, that will that will generate the most outrage and um, and fear. This is not a, an approach that is better for our world. And in fact, what we're seeing as the UN and the reports that we're getting in a, on a daily basis from our field operations is that we are operating as the UN in a toxic information environment that is hindering us from achieving the goals that we are trying to achieve on the ground um, for the betterment of communities and societies. And disinformation is a big part of that, isn't it? And I know this is an important topic for you. You've spoken about this many times. And I'm wondering, taking a longer view, I mean, there's always been propaganda. Sometimes it's crude. Sometimes it's sophisticated. It's always been out there, state actors, non-state actors. And I'm wondering if you think, you, you mentioned this toxic environment, are things really worse now than they than they were 50, 60 years ago, or just, just different? No, it, you're absolutely right. The actors have always been there. It's just now that they have a, have a superpower machine that is free, um, that is available to anyone to deliver their message um, far and wide, and uh, which is very participatory. It's, it's highly graphic. Uh, so it has more more reach and more penetration than any other medium has had before, and anyone can use it. So it's it's much more dangerous than any of the tools that we're used to. Of course, you know we've had uh, horrific examples in history um, that the propaganda and the Holocaust that dehumanized the Jewish population, um, the the genocide um, in Rwanda uh, against the Tutsis. I mean, there was a radio station that was at fault, that was state-owned and operated. But now we're seeing in the modern age, and there's the example of Myanmar, um, in, in a country where, you know, perhaps well-meaning, uh, Facebook decided it was going to offer uh, Facebook for free um, to everyone in the entire country. So connectivity, but connectivity without any media literacy and where the only way to get into the Internet was through Facebook, and which was exploited um, and what people then were, receive, were receiving were just very dehumanizing messages um, about the Rohingya population, giving them license to kill, license to, to rape, and license to drive out 700,000 members of the population. So do you think then the answer is for us, and I see us as people who would not consider themselves bad actors who want to get out positive, useful information that can save lives. Do we just have to get better at countering this? Absolutely. Um, I think institutions, the UN, um, public health bodies, uh, you know, all of us who are working to try to you know, deliver information based on facts and science, uh, we do have to get better at communicating. Um, the press release isn't going to cut it. The passive posting of a report on on a our website and just kind of expecting people to come and find on page 54 that nugget of information that they're searching for that's also not going to cut it we have to be out there in those digital spaces proactively where people are searching for information or just actually receiving it because they're living on these platforms um that's when they wake up in the morning when they you know take a coffee break there when they um are going to bed at night 
that's what they're seeing. We need to be in those feeds um, and communicating with people, uh, at least competing with the disinformation actors, hopefully um, uh, you know, winning, uh, winning over them. And at the same time, we need to continue our advocacy vis-a-vis the platforms that you know, it is really in the interests of our society, our, our world, that they look at the speech that is traveling on their, on their platforms and really do something about the most hateful of it. Well, it seems appropriate then to turn to some of the, the many ways that the UN has been making a positive difference to the world over the last 12 months or so. As I, as I said to you, I've been speaking to other colleagues in communications at the UN, and they've been finding out some of the examples. They could be big ones, they could be small ones, but examples that spoke to them, whether it's an activist who's been doing something with the UN campaign, uh, an international campaign, or a project or initiative. Could you share a couple of examples that have really touched you personally recently? It's been hard to communicate the value of the Black Sea Grain Initiative that the Secretary General and many of our colleagues um, managed to negotiate uh, when everybody thought there would be nothing to negotiate, nothing to gain out of this um, misery that people were suffering. People around the world were feeling the ripple effects of the Ukraine war in ways that no one expected. Um, It wasn't contained, you know, the suffering was not contained to Ukraine, of course, a special kind of suffering for the people of Ukraine. But there were people who were really living um, already on the edge, um, you know, a dollar a day or having, you know, two meals a day. Now they're down to one meal a day. And what this deal allows is uh, food prices to go down and the provision of of the wheat staple that so many populations around the world rely of rely on to be available, fertilizer to reach farmers um, who uh, desperately need it to grow their own crops. And um, yeah, so in a way, I've been looking at the people, the effect, you know, how interconnected our world is, first of all, who would, who knew how many people were dependent on Ukrainian grain and Russian fertilizer? And who knew um, that, you know, that, uh, just a war in in the middle of Europe would push people over the edge uh, into extreme poverty and hunger, and that there was a way um, through the UN to alleviate that. That was really moving to me. It was extraordinary. In the middle of a war, in the middle of so much distrust and, and hatred between the opposing sides, that a deal brokered by the UN and and Turkey would be able to actually see grain-filled ships moving through various da- very dangerous waters and calming these markets. Because as you say, it wasn't just the, the grain, the physical grain itself, it was the markets, it was the effect that it was having and the, the, the idea that in a few months' time there would still be no grain and that that would drive prices even higher. Uh, I think it, it was very well covered by the UN. I think uh, UN News and, and our... Um, interactions with the media, the secretary general's voice, his, his going to Moscow, his going to Kiev, his, his going and, and watching one of the, the first ships, you know, leave the port, um, very, being very personally involved. I, I, I do think that people started 
to put the pieces together in this story um, of how how food systems work um, and also maybe how they don't work. So I think it really is an important moment for the world to recognize um, that somehow sometimes the interdependence on imports you know may not be the best way, just as many countries are moving away using the Ukraine war as I mean a catalyst for moving towards renewable energy um, and that this might in the end um, have be one positive outcome of this horrific nightmare of this war. And it shows the, the convening power the UN has. And, and I, I suppose I wonder what you think about this, that the other example of the convening power of the UN is bringing people together for these annual climate conferences. And they're often decried as just being talking shops and blah, blah. But I, I, my personal thought is it's a miracle that anything gets done. I mean, imagine herding a million cats and actually coming to some kind of agreement and bringing practically all the countries of the world to agree on 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 at least one or two aspects i mean the big thing this year was agreeing a, a climate a resili- climate resilience adaptation financing and we did have fossil fuels mentioned in the previous year so of course the change is not as quick as many most people would like but the fact is that these conferences do achieve concrete results yes they, i mean actually there were those uh, cynics who were saying they were just absolutely predicting that this COP would end in headlines, um, failure to achieve anything. So it didn't move the needle a bit, maybe not as fast as we would like. And But those who do criticize it have no idea what it's like to work in this kind of multi, multilateral stage. Um, and yet, I think there's more understanding that none of these issues can be solved unless you work in a multilateral stage because they're all interconnected. Um, you cannot solve climate change alone as one nation. You need everyone on board. Um, and there's so, so many victims of climate change um, that are in need of compensation. They're in need of investment, but who also have, you know, incredible solutions. They're already ahead of, um, ahead of many because they need to be. And so there's a lot of cross-learning and cross-fertilization that can be done. So, yes, it was um, an incremental uh, success. I think there isn't anyone who would say that we shouldn't have cops anymore. There are only people who say, including our secretary general, um, we're not moving fast enough. Uh, warming is getting way ahead and we're in grave danger of not reaching our 1.5 degree goal. Let's talk a bit about Awake at Night. You're on your, what, sixth season now, I think. And uh, I was wondering what got you started, because I know you started this at the UN Refugee Agency. What was the impetus behind that? What were you trying to achieve? I, I used to travel to war zones and refugee camps, and of course I was very moved by the refugee stories I was encountering there. But I was almost equally moved um, by sitting in in cars and uh, in on you know bumpy dirt roads and just talking to my colleagues and asking them what they were doing there and why they decided to pursue this line of work, which was usually in very dangerous places where their families were left behind. And they just all seemed so driven and so passionate. And, and I thought, this is the part of the UN that people don't know. The UN is seen as kind of you know, like this big institution, but who are the humans that make it so 
meaningful and impactful. And so that's, um, yeah, so it really is, an, is to give people an entry point that is the human beings who are devoting their lives uh, for the UN cause. And, you know, it started out as people working for the refugee cause, but when I moved to the UN Secretariat, it, it expanded. And uh, I've, I've interviewed people who are working day in and day out on, on, on climate or who are um, working in Afghanistan to, you know, to try to, to help the people in this, against this horrific backdrop or in Ukraine who are, you know, investigating um, war crimes. Uh, in, so it, it, the, the, list, the list goes on. And, but it's not really about the news of the day. It's about who these people are and how they how they got to this place. And I have to say, so many of them have remarkable backstories. And um, I get a lot of feedback from listeners that they feel incredibly inspired um, by the people who are serving the UN. And the title really is a reflection of the fact that for many, this is a vocation rather than a job. Exactly. Awake at Night mm, <laughs> came about because I always heard from from colleagues that they do lie awake at night um very often thinking of not what they have just achieved not the lives that they have saved the mouths that they have fed but how much more needs to be done and how often do you get asked what keeps you awake at night i don't <laughs> no they, usually i'm I, I prefer to be in the in the role of the interviewer there but um, i worry that this year we are going to see so much more suffering um, as a result of war and conflict. There's not just the Ukraine war, but there are so many other festering conflicts. There are many people on the move, um, and there's this this cost of living crisis that is, you know, seeing so many people living um, and being and falling into extreme poverty. There is so much incentive now to reverse that to get the sustainable development goals um, back on track and injected with new, with new life um, and, you know, to look at how all kinds of systems that are not really serving the world, like our financial architecture, um, are, you know, could be reformed. So in a way, it is a year where we could see um, things getting worse, but it, there's also, it's also a year where we have an opportunity to turn so much of what is wrong with this world around. And complicated issues that take a lot of care to communicate effectively. We'll all be doing our best. Melissa Fleming, thank you so much for coming in today, and we wish you all the best for 2023. Thank you so much, Connor, and same to you.